Our Lord Jesus Christ is a person composed of many paradoxes. He is the greatest of paradoxes is that he's God and man in one person. He's the Lord and has all power and authority, and he's also a servant, a suffering servant. He died and he is alive. He's a lion and a lamb. And actually, he's given both those titles in the exact same sentence, which we'll see today. He's the greatest warrior of all time by far, and he also fears the Lord, and that's what we're going to look at today. The second coming of our Lord, when he comes as a warrior, uh, is uh, when he is going to uh, kill the Antichrist and end the empire or regime of the Antichrist, and there will never again be another Gentile power in this world, and... When he does that, he comes as a warrior, and when and so we will uh, return with him. And the, this is mentioned in our main passage in Second Thessalonians two. And what's important about this for us is a number of things, and one of them is to love our Lord. One of them is to know that he is going to return physically, and therefore we are going to live forevermore in a physical way. Spiritual and physical. That's important to understand. Uh, That we should admire him and love him. And also know that he has all things under control. So that we need not fear anything. But always look to him. As we learn and grow. As we saw last time. We'll actually see him. And he'll become a, a physical presence in our lives. Even though we don't actually see him. So we're going to begin in yeah we're going to begin at our main passage in Second Thessalonians. Let's open up in prayer and be thankful for our Lord and His success and His victory. Thankful to the Father for devising this plan and sending Him, and thankful for the Holy Spirit who makes it all real to each of us with humility and reverence. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege of being able to hear your word and to hear the things that have been prophesied so long ago about our Lord, who came long ago, but to each of us who believe in him and know him, he is so very real. We long to see him more and long to know him more. And Father, you promise that we will do that. So we must we we ask Father that you help us to overcome the things that are holding us back, to not fear, to not fret, to not be worried, to avoid the sins that so easily entangle us, and to run the race so that we may clearly see our Lord and enjoy his fellowship and his presence. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our theme today is the fact that the Messiah, our Messiah, is a warrior. The first time he came, his first advent, he did not come as a warrior. He came as a lamb. When he comes again, he will come as a lion. Uh, The Messiah is a warrior, but what is unlike any other warrior is that he fears the Lord. 
Uh, he fears the Lord, and him being Lord may sound paradoxical. Well, in a way it is. It's because when we, when we say he fears the Lord, we see that it is Yahweh or Jehovah or Yavah, whatever way you want to pronounce it, that's who's in view when it says that he fears him. And actually says that he delights. He's like very happy to fear. Uh, and that's who, to us, is God the Father. And as a result of his fear of the Lord, this humanity of Christ becomes the greatest leader that ever could be. So we're focusing on the second coming of our Lord this week. We'll be looking at it this week. We started to look at it Sunday. On Sunday, we saw a very broad application of this. And that is, we get to see him now. And I can't emphasize that enough because it's the whole reason for us learning doctrine and scripture. And I, I think many Christians, I don't I shouldn't say many, but I know some miss that aspect that people get their heads filled with doctrines and never really stop to ask themselves why they're all in there. There has to be a reason for which we're discovering the scripture. And there is. And it's to see the Lord. Uh, and there's a result of that. And, but they go together. If I see the Lord, I'm going to be like him. If I'm like him, I'm going to see him. And so they go together. You can't separate those two. I have to be like him to see him. The doctrines that I know and love, they must be applied. I don't know what love is unless I love. I don't know what patience is unless I'm actually patient. I don't know what kindness is unless I actually show myself kind in my heart and in my actions. Uh, if I don't actually live out the things that God has commanded me to do, then I'm not going to know anything about it. Academically, yeah, but actually, no, no. And so it's important that we understand that the appearing of our Lord at his second coming is something that we should be, well, first off, longing for, but uh, also in, in us, longing to see him now before we see him, before we die and we're face to face with him. We need to understand that we're to see him just like the apostles did, just like uh, John did, is what John says in First John. And that's what we, <clears throat> but today we're going to focus on his second coming as a warrior. But I, I want to keep repeating that, and I will. That you got to see the Lord now. Don't think that these doctrines are for any other reason. That's what they're for. They're for you living in a manner that is in his image. And to be in his image, which we're all predestined to be, Romans 8, 30, 29 and 30, we're called to be conformed to his image, predestined to it, that to be in his image, you have to see his image. And it won't be some faraway, distant, foggy, shadowy image. It'll be the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if he came here and showed himself to each of us, like I'm sure every one of us have desired probably multiple times, then we'd be so dazzled by his appearance, I don't think we'd go any farther. By the fact that he's not shown himself visibly makes us, if we're going to long to see him, we have to see his heart, his spirit, his mind, his conscience. And when I say conscience, I mean what he loves and what he hates 
what makes him happy and what makes him sad because we do have a Lord who was a man of sorrows. And to discover all of that, and it's a lifelong journey of discovery and a wonderful journey. <clears throat> Galatians 1.16, Paul says, he, God was pleased to reveal his Son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See that word, reveal. God was pleased to reveal his Son in me. I purposely picked a picture, and you can see it, but that nail print is in his hand. And, and, and that is, there's an, what you're seeing is a lion and a lamb. And the lamb that was slain is the one who has the nail prints. But that's him. The lion is the one who comes again and conquers. In each of us, there's a time when we have to be lions and times when we have to be lambs. There's times where we have to fight. There's times where we have to make peace. There's times where well, we always are at peace. But you know what I mean? There's times to be uh, uh, aggressive and there's times to say nothing. There's times to rebuke and correct. There's times to... Uh, comfort and encourage, and times to do both. And we have to figure those out, being like him. Uh, Ephesians 3.5, the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, has now been revealed. The mystery of Christ, no longer a mystery. Through his word and his spirit, both of which he has given to us, that we can, I think my page froze. Oh, that's great. Excuse me. Uh, next one. I can do this. Job 42.5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. We saw this uh, <coughs> in Job. I think I lost my internet connection. Well, that shouldn't matter. What's going on? Pardon me just for a second. Wow. Wow. My computer's freaking out. Stop that. <laughs> Sorry. All right, Job 1, 2. The whole thing's freaking out. I have to reboot it. All right, we can do this. Oh, man. What a bummer. All right, go to Isaiah chapter 11. No, actually, let's go to our main passage first. That's where I was going first. So, you're in Second Thessalonians. Stay there. Technology's awesome until it's not. All right, Second Thessalonians chapter two, and then so uh, in verse seven. Right, so we, we've seen this multiple times now, and that's okay, because repetition is the way that you get this stuff ingrained in your soul. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and this shows us that only he who now restrains will do so 
until he is taken out of the way. And so God is restraining this lawlessness, and then there will be a time when he doesn't, and that's going to be the tribulation. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth to bring to, bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And we saw this on Sunday, that the Lord's going to appear, and then when the Lord appears, that's when the end of this man comes. Now this man, this man of lawlessness, is the pinnacle of what's wrong with the human race. He's not some creature. He's a man. I mean, he's a creature, but he's a human being. And he is empowered by Satan. And halfway through the tribulation, three and a half years in, he will take over the world. And he will rule. And he is awful. Absolutely evil, awful. And his kingdom or his empire, which is worldwide, is absolutely immoral, evil. And as you see here, if you go back to... um, Verse 4, it says, Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So, as he's, verse 3 says, the apostasy comes first, and then this man comes. But what we want to do is contrast, and we have been doing that a bit, contrasting our Lord, the Christ, with the Antichrist. And by seeing that contrast, you see the contrast between God's kingdom and this kingdom. You also see the contrast between your flesh and your spirit. You see the contrast between your fallenness and your new creature. You see the contrast between earth and its curse and heaven and its holiness. And it's embodied in these two men because Christ is a man. And so is man and God, and so this man is a man, not God, but a man. He wants to be God, though, doesn't he? And so the Lord is, comes to do two things, kills him and puts an end to his kingdom, an end to him and an end to his kingdom. And then that, that Gentile kingdom, uh, or any Gentile kingdom, will ever come again. Jesus called it the times of the Gentiles, and that time is going to end at the end of the tribulation. Okay, so how does he destroy him? In verse 8, the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. We saw this on Sunday. That breath is this word that comes from his mouth, the sword. This is the Lord's sword, uh, uh, and bring bring him to an end. So he's going to slay him and bring to an end by his appearance. So we have the physical manifestation of the Lord and the word coming from his mouth. The very word that he used to create the world is the word that he will use uh, to destroy the Antichrist. All right. So this um, aspect of his sword or his word is in Isaiah chapter 11. So go to Isaiah chapter 11. And it's here that we'll see. A really a short, just verses one through five, is a short biography or a biopic of this warrior who is our Lord. So in verse four, 
uh, in the, so there's one, two, three, four lines to verse four. This is pretty typical with Isaiah that there's going to be four lines in each stanza. In the third line, he says in Isaiah 11:4, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. So here we see the very thing that Paul is referring to, is that from his mouth comes a rod. And this word is in other passages, as we saw on Sunday, attributed to his sword. And this is the very sword that he gave us, which we'll see at the end uh, today. So he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. His weapon of choice is his word. And the word is God. The word was God. The word, uh, the word uh, in the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. Sorry, and the word was God. Let me see if I can't boot this up again. Um, so then uh, that what's uh, unique about him as a warrior is, if you go back to verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Right? So he actually delights in it, the fear of the Lord. And we're told to fear the Lord. And how amazing is it that um, our Lord, who is God the Son, actually fears the Lord. And because he does, all the manifestations of him, and again, we're talking about him in his humanity now, not his deity. In his humanity, he, you know, as God, he's not going to fear God. It doesn't make much sense. But in his humanity, he does. And in his humanity, this is what gives him his... um, Excuse me for a second. I'm trying. I'm a man. I can't do two things at once. I don't, usually, women are very good at this. I am not. So let me get to print. Open that. I should teach more often without notes. Maybe that's what God is telling me. Oh, not that, dummy. There. So this this is... Um, so when the Lord comes back, I assume there'll be computers. And when the Lord rules this earth, they won't force you to update them. Because that's what happens. I've been avoiding an update for however long. And your computer freaks out. They've set this up so that the computer freaks out uh, and then forces you to update. And for my conspiracy theory friends out there, you know what this means. They're watching you. They're watching you. All right. 1 John 1, 2. Uh, The life was manifested. We have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life. So John, who it says in this passage, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we held him. This is the one we proclaim to you. He was manifested to us. Now we're going to manifest him to you. Now, if what John saw and touched and heard could not be reduplicated, then him saying this is kind of like, really, it's kind of like sticking it in our face that we don't get to know Christ as much as he does. I mean, because he lived with him. This is the Apostle John who laid on his breast, you know, the, 
the one who the Lord loved. He, had, he was the most intimate of the apostles. He was the most intimate with the Lord as his friend and as his cousin, in fact. And, um, you know, if we can't see him as he does, well then, you know, what he says is basically false. So the sole purpose, as I said before, for all your learning is to see Christ and to be like him. And this is of such importance because it, it's more of a, it's a broad picture thing, right? And we've just saw a, a few scriptures that so, say that we can see him. There's other passages that say that we're predestined to be conformed to his image in Romans 8. And we need to understand that that is the whole purpose of what we're doing. Don't miss the purpose. As I think a lot of Christians do. They miss the whole purpose of why they're doing this. You are to be conformed to the image of Christ, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, education level, socioeconomic status, your sickness, your age, your gender. None of that, none of that matters. All of us are to be just like him in everything we do. And that's where we're going. That's why this appearing in the future applies as much to that as if we're studying the subject of love or we're studying his birth coming into the world at Christmas or anything about him. All of it is to manifest itself in that way towards us. All right. Now, hold your place in Isaiah 11 and go to Revelation 5. Revelation 5.5. 5. comfortable with my notes in front of me. Revelation 5.5. 5. This great warrior who fears the Lord, as we just said, he delights in the fear of the Lord, is both the lamb and a lion. And talk about a contrast. You know, lambs eat, uh, the other way around, Joe, lions eat lambs. And, you know, is it a mistake that when, or a coincidence, that when David's at the battlefield with his gift uh, of food for his brothers and Goliath is out there uh, shouting his arrogance towards Israel, that David is in the camp, and when he asks what will be done for the man who, de- who defeats this enemy, that when he gives his testimony to Saul, he says, well, you know, a lion took one of my sheep, and I went and got it. I took that lion by the beard and walloped him over the head. I'm improvising. I walloped him over the head with my staff, and I took my lamb back alive. I rescued my lamb. David says that. That's not a coincidence. And Jesus is both of these. Look at uh, 5.5. In the scene in heaven here, the, the book, which is the book of Revelation, is brought out with seven seals on it. And it says, who's worthy? A voice in heaven says, who's worthy to open it, to break the seals? And no one was found. And because John heard this, he started weeping. And the angel says to him, stop weeping. In verse 5, behold, the lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. So a lamb, we would assume, with its throat cut. And that's what he saw. And we have right here in the same sentence, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb slain. How could he be both? But yet he is. He's not the typical warrior. He delights in the fear of the Lord. So go back to Isaiah chapter 11. And let's get back to verse 1 so that we get him in all the context here. Isaiah 11.1 Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The analogy here is to a vine, uh, a grapevine, from which this is a depiction, uh, Israel is depicted as a grape vineyard. And uh, the analogy to the vine is, for the Lord, eternal prosperity. This root, this branch, uh, is never going to end. He will bear fruit, as it says here. And we fast forward to the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And that we're grafted in. We, in this age, the Gentiles, uh, who are uh, grafted in, we're wild olive branches grafted into the olive tree, and we bear fruit. And Jesus said this, without me you can do nothing. And that you must bear much fruit. And we will, if we follow him, we will. The fruit is our life. And being like him, being like him is glorifying him. Now, in contrast to Jesus, is in Malachi 4.1, where the prophet says, or the Lord says through the prophet, the day, the day that is coming will set them ablaze, which all the wicked on the earth, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And no, neither root nor branch means a destroyed tree. But our Lord, in verse 1, is a branch and its roots will bear fruit. And as we know from the rest of Scripture, that is forever. That's his kingdom. And him and his kingdom. So verse 2. He is filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And he, these here are not six more spirits. There's seven mentions of the word spirit here. or seven manifest, First off, the Spirit will rest on him. And then six manifestations. And in the book of Revelation, we have this lamb who has seven spirits. The, the seven spirits are in, uh, around his throne, and it speaks of this manifestation of the Holy Spirit within him, which, by the way, he has given to us. So the word that he uses, he has given to us. The spirit that provides him with these qualities, he has given to us. Remember, as God, he has these qualities, but as in forever, unchangeable. But as man, he acquired them by means of the Spirit. As the Bible says, he wasn't born with wisdom, he acquired it. He wasn't born with uh, even humility. It says that he learned what humility was. And he did so by his suffering. And... As a man, it's it's so paradoxical uh, paradoxical to us that the Son of God would be born a child and have to learn even language. 
But yet he did. And he did it for a very real reason. So the spirit of the Lord, verse 2, will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord here is mentioned twice concerning him, which means that it's emphasized. And here we have knowledge and the fear of the Lord are last on the list, but if you look from the bottom up, it's really the foundation of the list. And it depends on how we look at it. And a lot of people see this as a menorah or the golden lampstand in in the tabernacle. The golden lampstand in the tabernacle had six branches and one in the middle for a total of seven. And it does mimic this. What you see here is the the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That would be that would be the one in the middle. And then you have three pairs wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And on the menorah you have three pairs or six branches. And that is the form of the golden lampstand that was in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so these qualities are from the Holy Spirit. But what, you know, the Lord, if, if he doesn't have this bottom one, I have issues. Come on now. There it is. (laughs) If he doesn't have the fear of the Lord, the rest of them don't manifest, right? Because if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you're rebellious. The Antichrist doesn't. The Antichrist wants to be above all gods. We'll see that this week. There's a reason that that phrase is there. And he's actually talking about false gods. He says he wants to be above them all. You know, why should we care about that? Well, There's a historical reason by which he wants to manifest himself above every nation on the earth and then be God. And here is the God, the real God, who actually the warrior who's going to defeat him has actually in his heart the fear of the Lord. And from that fear comes humility. And from that fear comes wisdom. The book of Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. There's a lot. People can have all kinds of knowledge from the Word of God, but because they don't actually have the humility of fear of the Lord, it's really just academic knowledge inside of them, and it does them no good at all. In fact, it can do them great harm because they get so arrogant about it. <clears throat> so all of these, the only one that may you might need some uh, help on is uh, counsel, and counsel would refer here to the fact that. He is, takes advisement, right? So he has knowledge, strength, counsel. means that he can counsel, but also it would mean that he is under the counsel of the law, of the Father, of the Word. Why? Because he has the fear of the Lord. Now think about how these are needed for leadership. Go to Proverbs chapter 8. A quick trip through a few Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8. And you hold your place in Isaiah if you want. Eight fourteen. Now, in this passage, wisdom in chapter 8 of Proverbs, wisdom 
is a woman who is speaking. So wisdom is uh, personified, as we say, and is speaking. And she says in Proverbs 8.14, Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine. By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. So kings reign by me, by wisdom. And what also comes with wisdom in the second line is power. I am understanding and power is mine. Uh, in this, on, our, uh, on the uh, characteristics of the spirit-filled life of the Lord is strength. And so strength from what? From wisdom. But where do you get wisdom? That's the next one. Look at verse 12. Go back to verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. So those things in uh, verse 13, uh, evil, pride, arrogance, evil, perversion of words, is a description of the Antichrist. That's what he's about. And what does he therefore lack? He lacks what the Lord has. Uh, what should we have? Now, so the, the true application to us, like we know the Lord wins. We know that he's absolutely a billion times superior to the Antichrist. That The Antichrist is no problem for him to defeat in that the Antichrist has a very limited kingdom and we know all of that. But the application to us is that as the Lord is, so must we be. Because when we are, we will have that same victorious life. Now, a victorious life doesn't mean a lack of suffering. It doesn't mean that everything is easy. It doesn't mean that your everything is, makes you happy. It means that you have a full life. It means that you have a prosperous life. And prosperous in terms of spirituality. So go back to... Chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I love how it's the beginning of knowledge. Right? Because you have a fear of the Lord doesn't make you a genius. Right? You have the fear of the Lord means that you're in first grade. You're in kindergarten. Now keep the fear of the Lord and keep learning. This means that you have to be, uh, have the fear of the Lord, which is a awe, respect, uh, an abs- a fear of going away from him, uh, straying into the realms of the flesh and the world and sin and evil, fearing the discipline that would come with it. Fearing, not pleasing him. There's many aspects to it. And when I thought I thought about, oh, here we go again, and I'm trying to define the fear of the Lord, which I, I don't think I've ever been able to do in a manner that uh, would make me happy, is I think each of us have to define it for ourselves. I, it, I think it's one of those things that when you know it, you know it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Go to 9.10, Proverbs 9.10. Just some subtle differences that are mentioned here by uh, who is most likely Solomon who wrote these. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So now the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it turns out, as it, as it always is in the literature of wisdom in the Bible, that wisdom is related to moral choice. It's not So if we said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and I say, well, you know, I became a wise financial investor by the fear of the Lord. Uh, God's not concerned about that. Right? The fear of the Lord is not you learning a skill as in finance or art or sports or whatever. You're a great carpenter. You know, that's not what this is about. In the Bible, wisdom is always attached to moral choices. And so by wisdom, so and this clarifies it in 9.10, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, the knowledge of God. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which is the knowledge of God. Go look at 15.16. What about the love of money? Proverbs 15.16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. And these, you know, when you, these couplets that we see in Proverbs, they can be comparative, uh, they can be parallel. Well, they're always parallel, but sometimes they contrast. And here we have a comparative one. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than so it compares itself to great treasure and turmoil with it. So, what should I really want? What's going to make me? Um, you know, truly rich in this life is the fear of the Lord. Look at 15.33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom and before honor comes humility. So now we get a little something else here is the humility aspect. The fear of the... uh, Before honor comes humility. We can't rush to honor, right? We need to be humble. And how do we get humble with the fear of the Lord? Proverbs 19.23. Go to 19. 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. So, the fear of the Lord is a good night's sleep. Now, is this a promise that every time you sleep that it will be a solid eight hours without one disturbance? No. I wish, but um, you know these these this these proverbs are in general uh, to you blessing. It doesn't mean that you'll never have a sleepless night. It means that you'll be at peace. And peace also is a word that has different connotations. Peace doesn't always mean that everything's going well or that I don't have any pressure in my heart. I mean, Jesus had pressure in his heart. It doesn't mean that. But sometimes it means that. Sometimes peace means uh, completion or fullness. And that even though I'm under stress, I'm not freaking out. That is an application of peace. Look at 22.4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. 
So riches, well, we just saw that she's more desirable than gold or that the fear of the Lord is far better than wanting riches. So these riches would refer to, it could be financial, it could be material, but it also would mean so much more that God would consider valuable. Look at 23.17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. So this here is application of jealousy or envy that would spring up when someone has more than me. And they don't go to church and they don't read their Bibles and they don't study God's word. They, they live wicked lives and they seem to have ease and prosperity. There's plenty of people like this. But why envy them when your riches come from God? You don't want what they have. So the fear of the Lord leads to all of these good things. Humility, honor, life, wisdom, and so on. Satisfied sleep. So this is why the Lord Jesus is a great warrior. As God, he's immutably omnipotent. Right? He is all power. What a warrior. I mean, is God really even, would we consider him a warrior? Does he have to take the battlefield? All he has to do is blink. There's wonderful passages in the scripture where God sneezes and kills everybody. Sort of. <laughs> That's a, 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 you know, me expanding on it a bit. But he blows his nostrils. There is a passage where he blows his nostrils. Um, you know, like, he technically he's not challenged by anybody. But when God becomes a man, now he's under pressure. Now he's challenged. Now he's temptable. Now he has to die and come again. And when he comes again, he's going to make war in a resurrection body. He, you know, but, you know, when he comes again, he can't die. He is beyond death. And so will we be. So rather than try and wrap your mind around the mystery of the truth that Jesus is the immutably omnipotent God and the man who fears God. Accept the truth in your soul as God reveals it. God has made us as new creatures so that truth actually melds with us. We don't have to understand all the ins and outs of it. In so many doctrines, we absolutely can't. But whatever truth is revealed, it melds or meshes or is missable, if you will, with our soul. And we recognize it because God has made us that way as new creatures. We have the Holy Spirit within so that we will have understanding and knowledge and wisdom. And when it meets a soul, a humble soul of a believer, a born-again believer, then the truth finds a home and changes us. It's a very supernatural process, actually. So a warrior who fears the Lord. Now go back to Isaiah 11. Now we find a warrior who has the right to judge. And this Antichrist can't judge. He's terrible at it. And he's like every despot. Paranoid. Um, those who aren't worship him, he kills. And he he rule he he just murders. 
And just like every despot, he's paranoid, self-centered, fearful. And, and, uh, and even though he's empowered by Satan, how can Satan, who himself is likely fearful, is able to give someone a lack of fear? Satan empowers him to deceive, to do signs and wonders. Satan cannot empower a man to lose his fear, even if he wanted to. He couldn't do it, because only God can do that. Hence the great contrast here. Here's our returning Lord, judging. Look at verse 3 again, Isaiah 11:3. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And there's the breath of his mouth, just as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. So notice his judgment is not by what he sees or what he hears. And that seems odd to us because he's perfect. He's pretty much the only one who could do that. No human being could. But he... He actually states it this way because he's not going to judge according to appearance, which is with the eyes, or rumor with the ears. No one is going to be able to fake it before him, in other words. He's going to judge not by appearance, but by law, and not just any law, divine law. He's going to judge by the word. He's going to judge by the law. Look at uh, on the board, John 12:48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at that last day. So Jesus himself says, it's my word that is going to judge. This is the sword or the rod that comes from his mouth. And so he is going to judge the poor. Notice, Notice who he adjudicates righteously is the poor and the afflicted of the earth. Now, the poor and the afflicted are the ones, especially in the tribulation, who have been uh, unfairly and unjustly treated by this great Antichrist. Uh, there's going to uh, gr- probably, I, I would say confidently, the greatest discrepancy between rich and poor in the history of the world would be during this time, during the tribulation. I read about what happens in Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. It's just these a handful of elites who own everything and run everything who are at the favor of the Antichrist, very much like it is now. But then, to an nth degree, and uh, it all gets destroyed by the Lord, not by us, not by some rebellion during the tribulation. It tells us in the Word of God that the Antichrist overpowers the saints. So if there's anything in anyone's mind to think that all of us Christians can band together and fight the Antichrist, that's just ridiculous. He has power over them. And when the Lord allows him to martyr, he will martyr. We can't match his strength. Not in a physical way. So it's the Lord who destroys, as we see here. So when he returns. So the contrast here is on the board. We have two things at the top. We have the fear of the Lord. 
at the top, and the contrast to that is he elevates himself above all. And so absolute stinking pride versus absolute humility. And what happens here is first, the Lord gives. The Antichrist takes. The Lord gives to his. It's the whole reason he came, right? I came to give them life and life abundantly. I came to give them truth so I can set them free. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I came to set them free. And if we are free, we are free indeed. Uh, so God, uh, the Lord gives eternal life, the Spirit, the Word, and even His very armor. He gives to us. The warrior gives us all that He uses. Gives it to us. You have it now. You and I. We have the Word in our soul. We have the armor of God that we can wear. We have the Lord that we can see. We have the Word of God in our hearts. We have the Spirit of God in our bodies forever. Uh, he judges eternally and justly. The Antichrist judges unfairly and is himself judged. Jesus Christ, his kingdom is eternal. The kingdom of the Antichrist lasts three and a half years. That is it. It's very short. Uh, I'm sure, you know, if he was given free reign or free time, it would last longer. But the Lord puts an end to it. And the reason why he does is he states, I think this is in Joel, that if he didn't put an end to it, no one would have survived it. Like the whole world had been dead. Um, and that just goes to show, you know, when it comes to uh, this, the fact that he judges unfairly, that part. The Lord said that if I had let it go on, everyone would be dead. How does he run a kingdom? Well, eventually everybody in it dies. That's another contrast I could put here. Right? It's just absolutely awful. Everybody dies. But in the Lord's kingdom, everybody lives. Yeah. And lives eternally in a resurrection body, in perfection, in perfect holiness, in perfect happiness. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows, no more death. Great contrast. And the contrast for us. Alright. Back to 11.5 now. Last thing. Armor. In 11.5, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now, I didn't do an extensive word study here, but I'm thinking loins and waist are right around the same thing. And so his belt is made up of two things, righteousness and faithfulness. All right? He is righteous because he's sinless. He's righteous as God. But this is all speaking of him as a warrior and therefore more emphasis on his humanity. And his righteousness and his faithfulness come from this list. That it comes from this one at the bottom. That's why it's mentioned twice, I think. That he delights in the fear of the Lord. That's why he's faithful. He delights in the fear of the Lord. That's why he's sinless. Not that we can be sinless. But he came, when he came to the earth, he subjected himself to the Father. When he's tempted in the wilderness, he uses the word of God. He will not take on Satan as God, which he could. Turn the stones into bread. He could have. He's not going to do it. 
he's going to wait on the timing of the Father, even though he's hungry. He submits himself. Just like in Philippians 2, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And to us, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So there's his armor. Now go to Isaiah, last passage. I'm actually going to finish in a time that I like today. This is great. Isaiah 59, 16. This is also about his second coming. Isaiah 59, 16. So we saw that his belt was righteousness and faithfulness. Then in Isaiah 59, 16, and he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. There's no one to um, judge with him, which makes perfect sense. And then his own arm brought salvation to him, meaning his strength. His, uh, the arm in Scripture often refers to strength. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put garments of vengeance for clothing. So there's one aspect of the Lord's armor that we don't get. And that's the vengeance part. Right? So make sure that we... Make a mental note. I think we already know uh, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. So where he says he put on garments of vengeance, that's for him, not for us. He wrapped himself in a, with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands, meaning all over the world, he will make recompense. So if we put it all together, we have his armor, his righteousness, as a belt and a breastplate, faithfulness as a belt, salvation as a helmet, vengeance as a garment, but that doesn't come to us, zeal, absolutely we can have zeal, we're commanded to actually, and his sword, which is the word of God from his mouth. And he gave us all of this. He gave it all, all of it to us, besides the vengeance part. Leave that to him. I'm very glad to leave that to him. All I do is mess it up and it stress me out. His Holy Spirit, his word, his armor, he gave it all to us. Question for you and for me is, are you using them? Day by day, no matter what's going on today, whether it's a lot or a little or nothing, are you using them? Are you cherishing them? Are you protecting them, guarding them? Uh, maturing them? Are you pursuing skill with them so that you will see Him? Skill with the Holy Spirit. Skill with His Word. Skill with His armor. Every day. Every day before every person, everywhere. Because there's a reason He gave them to us. That we would be like Him. We'll be like Him, we will see Him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for our Lord, our warrior, who is the Lion of Judah and the slain Lamb, who together, though a paradox to us as believers, somehow through your Spirit, it makes perfect sense that we have our in our Lord, our King, our Husband, our Friend, our Savior. We thank you, Father, for him so much. Let us each see, Father, what, how important it is for us to take advantage of these gifts that he has given us and use them in with wisdom 
which starts with the fear of you. Teach us to fear you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.